For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. On paper, this seems like a pretty weird idea. Let's make a sneaker out of wool. Let's make it in one design, at least to start with. So one shape, maybe a couple of colours, neutral or neutral or neutral. (laughs) Nothing showy, let's have no logos. So basically, let's design one shoe in plain colours with no branding, make it out of a material that no one associates with shoes. And let's base ourselves in a place where fashion is not of the greatest interest. Oh, also... Let's make sustainability this massive part of it. When we know that very few shoppers at this point, because it's 2016 when this brand started, at this point, very few people decide what to buy based on sustainability. Does that sound like a recipe for obvious success? (laughs) And yet, Allbirds is a phenomenon. Time magazine put Allbirds sneakers on its cover with the line, comfiest shoes in the world. Celebrities like Matthew McConaughey, Leo DiCaprio, Barack Obama, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jennifer Garner, there's loads of them. They all wear them obsessively. And I'll tell you a story about this when you listen to the interview. Allbirds is clearly one of the hottest shoe startups on the market. So meet founders Tim Brown and Joey's Willinger as we get to the bottom of what makes Allbirds fly. We unpick their approach to materials. We talk about their really bold, actually, carbon strategy and the whole carbon neutrality situation, which is definitely preoccupying fashion right now. And we look at why they chose to be a B Corp from the start and just basically try and figure out why it is that Instagram and everyone else is completely bananas for this sustainable San Francisco-based startup that genuinely puts people and planet at the core of their vision. Talking of purpose and brands that give back, I've been planting trees this week. I've joined forces with an Australian B Corp, the furniture brand Koala, that is working with WWF to create and sustain koala habitats. And so the big aim is to grow and save 2 billion trees in Australia in the next 10 years. To find out how you can join us and more about how you can contribute, go to koala.com forward slash blog forward slash 2 dash billion. This is the last show of Series 3. We'll be back with amazing stuff for you in Series 4 early February. In the meantime, I hope you'll catch up over the holidays on shows you've missed or want to revisit. And also help me spread the word. I've been humbled and downright delighted on a weekly basis by your feedback and support and by watching this community grow. Seriously, mates, you complete me. I was like, what do I want for Christmas? You. Anyway, you can make my day by rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you listen and by sharing on social media. 
You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and our Facebook page is Wardrobe Crisis. But now let's go to San Francisco and hang out at Allbirds. Tim, Joey, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me into your world. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, appreciate it. Guess who I sat next to on the plane? Um, you got us. So I was sitting opposite a certain actor who was with his son on the flight from Sydney to San Francisco, and he was wearing your shoes, and he would be dot, dot, dot. No idea. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, really? Oh, really? That's yeah. pretty cool. Oh, and awesome. I was like, I had not realized that it was him. And my seatmate next to me, who I didn't know, was like, can I tell you some gossip? Is that right? Is that <laughs> and then true? She went, Look, it's Matthew McConaughey. I was like, oh. I glanced down a bit later and realized he was wearing your shoes. And I thought, this is absolute gold. I know he's a fan. Anyway, I cobbled him and asked him. Did you really? Yes. And then he, I said to him, I have a strange question to ask you. And he looked like, oh, yeah. God, here we go. Not for the first time, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And then I said, it's about your shoes. And he broke out into a big grin. And then we just had this massive download about how much you love Albert. <laughs> That's, That's cool. Amazing. That's amazing. Would you like to copy his accent? Because I can't. No, I, no, go on. No, I, I can't do that. I can't do it justice. Stop chicken out. Got to meet him first. Hello. Come on. <laughs> he was like, say hello to those guys. I love those guys. So, so there, was a, there was a story on the entertainment section of the New York Times, this really amazing profile of Woody Harrelson, and uh, he talks about Allbirds, and then he talks about really liking the product and sending them to his buddy Matt McConaughey in, in the article, which was just this, this cool thing that happened. So It's a really good kind of word of mouth. You can't buy PR like that. Why do you think that you've had so much organic success with influential people? Most of the brands out there are putting huge logos on their shoes and flashy colors so that they draw the attention of people when they're shopping and they jump off the shelf. And I don't think think the brilliance of what Tim has done on the design side is really to identify that in a world where people, particularly creative people like entertainers, are working in totally different ways than they used to work. And, you know, maybe because you can run around and just work off your mobile phone now instead of sitting in an office. But, you know, the wardrobe has to keep up with that. You got to be comfortable from a style perspective when you're going out to dinner and when you're working and when you're doing a whole bunch of other things in between. And maybe you're a little more active. Uh, And it's got to be like that physical feeling where it actually supports you when you're using it for a really long time instead of going with a stiff pair of leather work shoes and then going out of some. I think that's really appealing to people in the entertainment community and creative class, maybe more generally. And that's where we found this huge pickup for for people. And that's like, you know, interior designers and creators of all all varietals. And I think entertainers just happen to be one of those groups. You must have had a moment of being like, yes, when you see the likes of some of those people, because like I say, you can't buy it. Barack Obama. Leo. That was pretty cool. What happened when he first had one of those moments? uh, Mum called me one day uh, pretty early on and Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, had met with the Australian Prime Minister, I forget which one it was at that time, and uh, had gifted him a pair of Allbirds and he already had a pair. (laughs) And Mum said, she goes, "This, you know, you've made it, this is it, this is as good as it gets. So that was that was a pretty cool one. Yeah, look, I mean, this whole journey's uh, had plenty of pinch me moments. And I like to sort of say that this was a bad idea for a long time. I probably started working on it in 2007, 2008, uh, went through hundreds of variations of this idea of a wool shoe with, as Joe touched on, a different design aesthetic. And the idea that we've met the likes of Leo through this and you're bumping into Matthew McConaughey on the plane, you kind of you kind of have to laugh because this was this was a bad idea for a long time before it was a good one. So that being said, there was some things that have that have worked and some things that we've done well. And, 
you know, I'd like to think that we're only just sort of beginning really in terms of where we could maybe take the idea. I also want to share the non-famous responses to all birds because I just posted on Instagram that I was coming to meet you guys and said we're going to be sharing the story and lots of comments but I want to read this one out to you I think it's significant for me because it comes from she's a friend of mine she's called Lucy King but she used to head up sustainability for Country Road Group in Australia Mm -hmm. so she's into sustainability and she wrote so envious I bought a pair of all birds recently and they're so comfy love everything about this brand and the materials they're using but to me that comment's quite interesting because it combines two things first of all from a sustainability professional who's up with your stuff but materials and comfy can we unpack that word comfy because I was talking to your head of design Jamie McClellan yesterday about comfy being somewhat of a dirty word in fashion in kind of traditional fashion circles no one wants comfort, my God. You just want the looks. We will suffer for the looks. Like taxi shoes, we were talking about that the other day. If your shoes kill you and you can't walk, doesn't matter if they look good. Now, <laughs> what do you think? Jamie said to me that he reckons maybe it's generational and Gen Z don't feel that way, i.e. I'm an old bag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's what he meant. No, but maybe the, maybe there is a different take on that now. Obviously, if you're talking about kind of tech world, it's a bit different. But even in fashion, what do you reckon? What does comfort, I saw it on one of your Christmas ads, the word. Yeah, look, I mean... It's you, a selling point for you. You know, when you, your dad tells you he's got comfortable shoes, you assume they don't look very good. So, I, I mean, I think the baggage with that word and fashion style is clear. And I think one of the things that surprised us is just how much of a, an opportunity it was to bring a design sensibility to that word and to bring materials to support a, a better product experience. It's kind of like, you know, we've the number one reason why people buy shoes, but oftentimes not something you want to talk about. So I think there's a whole tension in that word that's really interesting. And then I, I think... But you're owning it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, people don't buy sustainable products. They buy great product experiences. And one of the things we found early on was that these uh, natural materials that we were trying to bring to market in, in footwear in different sorts of ways were more comfortable. That was the competitive advantage where maybe synthetics couldn't go. And so, you know, it became a benefit and a very clear, simple idea. And, and then as we got into this a little bit more, we realised that comfort, you know, is a pretty interesting sort of word when you, you know, it's a different thing when it's raining when you're in Bondi Beach in the summer to when you're in Wellington in the winter. So, I mean, I I think um, you've got to create different solutions and different products in support of those moments, and that's what we've tried to do as we sort of unfurled our product vision. What was the Time magazine headline? Oh, when we we started the company? Yeah, we did have some good fortune that they called us the world's most comfortable shoe. According to the Wall Street Journal, you're a $1.4 billion company. Joey, is it true? Well, we've never really shared our valuation with anyone, frankly. So they tend to have good sources throughout the financial community, and who knows? But that's a that's well, a you know. that's a private round valuation, right. um, and you know what we're worth is being a private company is kind of a some ways quite arbitrary. But people are putting prices on on companies through equity financings, and we're continuing to do those things. I think the most important part is. It's quite substantial, um, given where we are at and the age of our company. So you'd sold more than a million pairs of shoes within a couple of years? Yes. Let's just say you're successful. How do two guys with no background as sneaker freaks, no background as shoe designers, build a super successful, sustainable company? 
Well, some of it is that that's the benefit is that we have no idea what we're doing. And that some of that like positive naivety coming into an industry that has been doing things in the same way for 50 years since kind of industrialized um, athletic sneaker manufacturing has started in the, in the early 70s. There hasn't been much that's changed. And you know, there's been cool technologies that have been added here or there, and, and not to diminish some of the accomplishments of, of some amazing industry players in, in the footwear industry. But um, you know, I think we came in and we didn't know what we were supposed to do, quote unquote. And so we did what we thought was right given where the world is today. And my background in renewable materials was a big contributor to our joint vision of of doing things in a much better way from a sustainability perspective. And we, we knew, as Tim mentioned, that people don't buy sustainable products, they buy great products. So our view was, let's make a no compromise offering that is phenomenal for customers and also phenomenal for the planet. And we see an opportunity that's great for business and great for leadership and how companies should be making consumer products. And blending those two things is something that could be quite special. And, and so that was the hunch that we had. And and I think, you know, speak, going back to your question on valuation, like I think that's a big idea. And we're in this industry where, you know, there's one company that makes 400 or 500 million pairs of shoes per year. So that's just one company. And that the industry overall is 20 plus billion pairs a year. Is it? Yeah. Numbers around are crazy. The world. U.S. alone is two, three billion pairs per year. So, you know, given the scale of that and the kind of bigness of the idea that we're hoping to achieve, not just from like a financial perspective, but from a leadership in terms of how to make stuff, it's a big industry with a big idea. And so that kind of supports like an ambitious um, set of investors that are looking for us to do more and we're, we're up for the challenge. So that's why we've kind of agreed to, to go that route. I want to know your stories. Tim, you were a footballer. Obviously, you wore some sneakers in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So Where'd I played. I played up? in the A League in Australia, but I, you know, I grew up in New Zealand. Whereabouts? In Wellington. Came to university in America on a soccer scholarship to study design. Finished that. Fell in love with that subject. And were you awesome at football? I I tried really hard, and and that's probably <laughs> you were awesome. When you got the scholarship. Was that your big dream? Well, I'll, I'll say it because he's too humble. But I mean, going to the World Cup and being the vice captain of the New Zealand national team in the 2010 World Cup, I think probably doesn't get too much better than that so I, I would say he's like mm, yeah it's all right <laughs> we're good doing that thank way you, he's that he's the humble kiwi and i mean i'm the brash american so thank that's you. why that's why it thank, works thank you joe yeah i so I, I came out of that and um now go back to that i want to know so it must take so much focus and physical effort to get to that stage yeah how did it start as a kid i you know i just loved doing it and i started playing when i was i don't know four or five and made friends and lifelong friends and fell in love with with running around and, and the game and um, and all the all the good stuff that it brought you and I, I played it for a long time right through high school and um, through to the end of the end of that period and, and my auntie was American and she introduced this idea of the university system and a scholarship mm. and what did your parents do uh, my mum was a nurse and my dad worked in the not-for-profit space for most of his career with UNICEF and Bernardo's and charities of, of that kind, the Cancer Society of New Zealand, uh, in leadership roles for his career. Um, what did sp- I mentioned? Didn't play like, sport, neither right, of them. Right. My, my dad, the opposite of playing sport. But they were, they were supportive. And, and my auntie, she said, um, look, the, the ability to go and study and play, she'd gone to the University of North Carolina and she really pushed me and actually bought me a book at the time that listed all the different universities and soccer programs. And I made a little video 
of some games that had just been on TV. Mm, can we get a copy of that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it was exactly it was like that thing <laughs> listed. I mean, with pre-internet, and then sent uh, sent off videos and, and got a couple of offers and ended up going to the University of Cincinnati to study design and play soccer there and, and did so for four years. Is that quite unusual? I mean, amongst your peers, to be trying to find another avenue for what you might do in the future while being professional or while being yeah there was a, there was a bunch of kind of kiwis like notable kiwis that had started to go down the path of the u.s you know for both sport and academics and and so you know i kind of just followed in their footsteps and it was phenomenal it was just an amazing experience and i left home um i had this incredible educational experience at one of the great design schools in the states and, and played football there and got to the end of that time and um and the sport thing had, had continued to go well and, and uh, you know, I got a couple of opportunities to try and play professionally that uh, didn't work out, but I kept on going and found myself in the A-League. And my first real professional contract was with the Newcastle Jets. And I played for another six, seven, maybe eight years with Newcastle and then with the Wellington Phoenix. After the World Cup, you realised it was never going to get any better than that. And oh, you uh, reached, you've got yeah. that, the highest point you can get. Oh, and beyond. And so uh, I'd had this business that was sort of... I want to say it was a business. It was a project on the side of this idea of creating a shoe out of wool, which was about a design insight initially and then the realisation that shoes are made largely out of synthetics. What did sport teach you about conventional trainers? I was sponsored by the big sportswear companies and that was cool. We got loads of free gear and that was awesome. It was one of the great things about the job. But it was, I, you know, I felt like a walking billboard and everything was loud, it was logoed, and it changed all the time, seemingly for no good reason. And so the, the idea of finding simple in New Zealand, there was kind of Chuck Taylors and there wasn't really anything else. Mm-hmm. So the first initial plan was just to design something simple. And if you were going to create one sneaker, what would it look like? And I, I literally flew to my first footwear factory in Indonesia that I found on the line in the off-season. And I stumbled into this world that I knew nothing about that was incredibly antiquated that hadn't really changed in a long, long time. And I, and I made my first sort of run of shoes and sold them to my teammates and they made fun of me. <laughs> okay, we're going to get on to materials, but Joey, I would love to just hear about your story. So you worked for a biotech company. Yeah. You worked with algae. Yeah, indeed. When we came yesterday, you were like, see that surfboard? Yeah. Made out of algae. I was he, like, you what? <laughs> he also played soccer at university at Cal. That is at true. At the same yeah. time. Lesser part, the same of, time. <laughs> lesser part yeah, of my history. But yeah. All right, got to ask you. <laughs> yeah, actually, we graduated you? the same year. I was fine. I didn't know where to go on the field, so I just, yeah, anyway, got me to a certain point, and then I had to stop. Okay, go back further. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Bay Area, actually. My, so my parents were um, both professors of psychology, and so far I haven't turned out to be completely screwed up, which is surprising, but good for me. And my dad was quite an activist around the African-American studies department at his university and the civil rights movement in general, and really taught me to make sure I had a social consciousness around the work I was doing, no matter what field it was in, right. which that, that had been kind of driven home to me, not explicitly, but just part of my DNA by growing up around around him and, and my mom, who left apartheid South Africa quite early on in her life. Oh, I see. Um, and my sister is an environmental lawyer as well. And so I think there's it's not a total coincidence that that's the case. And I think... You know, when I started doing business, I, I didn't really know what business was. 
And so I just started like feeling around in the dark for a bit. And once I understood what it was. You went to Goldman Sachs, right? You went to Deloitte. Right. As well as doing. Yeah. So those were my first jobs. And what I found was you could kind of make a lot of your own rules up. And it was, you know, within reasonable constraints, but it was quite dynamic and it allowed you to use creativity quite well. And, you know, typically people were just trying to make money with that creativity. And given, I think, my background, and it just led me towards trying to find something that was not just a creative outlet to make money, but a creative outlet to make money and also do something quite positive for the world. And that, you know, knowing that we would get a lot more satisfaction out of that latter part than the former part, once you hit a certain threshold. You worked for a biotech firm that was called then at that time Teravia, right? Yeah, Solazyme and then Teravia. What do yeah. I don't understand this algae story, yeah, so but I, it links to what you're doing now. So, so I started. Please. I started investing, and in, I always wanted to use this private sector, probably since like you know, right after college, to do something positive. So I started investing as a venture capitalist in environmental technologies, or at least I was seeking to invest in those. Sometimes it was software, and then grew continually more passionate about that idea and that concept, but figuring that investing wasn't the right channel to do that. So I joined a company where we, it was a biotech firm called Solazyme at the time, and we engineered microalgae to metabolize some kind of renewable resource like sugarcane or some other ones and take those inputs and produce a high-performance product that could compete with petrochemical or, or petroleum products. And they're using what? Because, I mean, the surfboard firm is a, yes. was a little experiment, but what what? So it was wild. We did, we did some in um, cosmetics products. There was a line, a big line that was we, we launched called Alginist that was good for anti-aging and wrinkle cream and things like that. And then we had some food products, actually, because it was very similar to vegetable oils. Uh, we had biofuels that we sold into aviation, so we got to provide fuel for the first ever uh, renewable jet fuel on a commercial flight from Houston to Chicago on United Airlines. Little green wingtips. It was pretty cool. Uh, and then I led the chemicals group where we, we engineered products for a whole host of different industries, ranging from consumer products and, and footwear to things like very industrial, strange applications um, that no one's ever thought of or heard of, but soaps and surfactants, things like that. All right. So just really briefly, how'd you meet three of your wives, girlfriends? Yeah, they were roommates at university. That was very brief. <laughs> no, they... <Good>. Uh, <laughs> Do, do, do you want to elaborate? That's the trick, yeah. I've got my eye on the time. I was like, be brief. You're like, yes. <laughs> Next question. I had this idea that I would ask you to describe one another. Joey. Describe one another? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so Tim, as I said, he, he's the humble part of the duo. Incredible sense for what consumers, just intuitive sense for what consumers want. And that's really been amazing for us as a business from a marketing and design perspective. Uh, and then I think um, just really like embodies one of our company's most important values of we call it live curiously. But what that means for us is that you you don't take when somebody says this is just the way things are. You don't take that and you, you accept it. You you ask a lot of questions, and underneath the ability and the desire to ask questions, to me is it's a requirement to have humility to know that you don't know all the answers and that asking simple, sometimes dumb questions is actually a great way to really learn and that you can always learn more. And that humility embodies itself through this curiosity. I'd say that's a big attribute of Tim and and that's a big attribute of our company's culture as a result of that. And I think it's something that hopefully he's quite proud of, but it's, it's great to work with. No, it's a bromance. You've had more time. Thank you. Yeah. I needed it. No, no, that's, um, thank you. (laughs) That's, uh, thank you. Uh, those are kind words. I've started working on on making a shirt a wool and 
2008 and uh, it was a design insight that was followed by a comfort insight and maybe an observation on materials and the opportunity with wool but I mean six years later I was still fumbling with that idea and, and didn't know why and I was in London at that time after I retired from sport and I was, I was a little lost to be honest and I had this sort of project and I met Joey and, and I met a, a kind of force of nature in a lot of different ways and, and someone that has brought a, a purpose to this whole journey for me, saved it from probably stopping, brought a, a level of sort of business acumen and strategy and thoughtfulness around that, certainly. But it was this idea and a vision that the world was about to change and it needed to change and that we needed to find better ways to make things. I feel there's a person that I learn from, get challenged by and laugh with on a regular basis. And we built this thing from two people working out of his mother-in-law's house and his dog Walter into a company now of, you know, 400 people. And um, I was going to say I met Walter, but actually it was Walnut. It was Walnut. Yeah. There are a lot of dogs in this Very yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, Just to be clear, that. very different. Walnut is very different from Walnut Walter. Walnut is a border collie, <laughs> yeah, a border exactly, terrier. Yeah. Walter? Yeah. Walter is actually an Australian Labradoodle. I'll give you guys a shout out. Um, I do have to just stop for a moment and talk about the fact that it is bring your dog to work day every day at Allbirds head office. It actually makes, I say that because it made me happy, but there's a real reason for saying that. It makes everyone happy. You walk into this place and it's got a very good vibe. And when we talk about business for purpose and creating businesses that do good through their supply chains, sometimes I think we neglect to think about whether that happens where everyone is based as well. You make it a virtue of it. You can see it. There's well, it's also drawings on the wall. You know, it's, it's also not easy what we're doing. So you know, we're, we require a lot of people that work at this company, and the bar is super high. We make sure that everyone is really aligned in terms of the mission, and and is really seeking to you know achieve the same goals from an environmental perspective is what we're saying. And so we do ask a lot. It's hard. It's not like a it's just you know show up and phone it in. And so as a result, you know, we think it's super important to invest in our employees in a way that makes them happy and passionate and allows them to do things that, you know, maybe they they never thought was possible in themselves. And I think we've seen a lot of instances of that where people have just had the most success in their career when working here. And it's something that I hadn't anticipated how much satisfaction I might personally draw from creating a culture where people really had their best brought out. And that's been pretty cool. Can't all be sunshine and rainbows. What's hard about it? I mean, yeah, it is not all sunshine and rainbows. I mean, look, people all have their quirks and people go through tough times and, and we try to be an extremely empathetic place when it comes to people going through rough spots in their lives. Uh, and that's personally and also professionally. And, and you know, there's a lot of um, competing priorities and we can't give everything exactly what they want. And human nature is human nature. You look around you and you try to... <laughs> yeah. And it's grown so quickly. And, you know, it started off... You know, north of 400 people now, and you know, we we had some incredibly loyal people that joined us in the beginning that took big chances to come and be a part of this, and uh, we had some success. And their reward, in some cases, was to get a boss. <laughs> you know, because we were we were growing, we need to hire and elevate the sort of people that we had in the team, and those those things can be difficult. But for the most part, there is, I think, if we're proud of of one thing, and if we look forward to some of the, the challenges ahead, you know, the, the group we've assembled is pretty remarkable. Let's talk about B Corp. You were a B Corp from the outset, right? So we, we formed the company as a legal entity that's called a public benefit corporation. So it's a U.S. company, but 
it's a new legal structure that permits companies to state a public benefit in addition to their fiduciary responsibility. So normal corporations in America kind of just think they owe it to shareholders to improve the value of the stock, so to speak. And we also have that obligation, and we've taken money from people who want to return on that investment. But we also, when, when those people invest, they also know that they're investing into a structure where our public benefit is also environmental conservation. And it's so, actually radical, isn't it? As a structure, it seems radical, although people are moving towards it. The people are moving towards it. And I'd say, you know, there's a, in Europe, there's a lot more what we would call stakeholder capitalism versus just shareholder capitalism. And that stakeholder model is probably more similar to what we're espousing and what we believe in. And we just like comfort and design and, and beauty don't have to be compromised by sustainability. We also think that a company can exist and contribute to a whole bunch more stakeholders than just you know the rich shareholders. And we've really believed that from the beginning. And we also believe that we're in this moment in time where people just demand more from business. I think there's a bit of a vacuum from policy, and there's a lot of divided governments, uh, not least of which here in the U.S., and those vacuums that division creates in terms of policy and progressive policy, particularly on the environment, I think people are looking for business to step up and do a bit more. And those people don't mind rewarding businesses that do that. And I don't think that's bad. Like I think that people want business to contribute to society. And if they make money while doing that in a way that they value, they'd be happy to spend money with that company. And so we, we think that that's another no compromise kind of situation that we love to be hopefully a leader in and show other people how it's possible. Allbirds focuses primarily on materials and storytells really brilliantly around materials and is looking to disrupt the whole way that we make shoes in terms of what those fabrics are. But what about supply chains in terms of the human side? Do you pay a living wage? Yeah, we make sure that we are extremely mindful of that. And that's that's only one element. We, you know, we think about chemical disposal of things like dyes and make sure that's extremely thoughtful. When we use wool, we make sure it's on using the most humanely treated animals um, and not just the animal welfare, but also the land management around uh, the use of that. Same for forests. We think about when we're using sustainably harvested wood for our tree line. We're, we're looking at low irrigation forests that are managed plantations that are doing great for the environment. And then all the way through to the workers and the conditions that they're working in, the pay is one element. We're very mindful of that. Where do you manufacture mostly? So we have, um, it's a pretty extensive network, our supply chain, but we have, I'll kind of give you a broad sampling. Some of our fibers come from New Zealand on the wool side. Yeah, but where do you Africa. actually assemble the shoes? Assemblies in Korea, primarily, and also some in southern China. Okay. Let's talk about materials. I want to just ask you, Tim, about wool. That was your original idea. Mm-hmm. Um, use New Zealand wool, right? Yeah, the vast majority of it is New Zealand merino wool. Um, what steps do the growers take on the farm towards sustainability? Because I was reading about carbon sequestration and mapping biodiversity on farms. Yeah, so we partnered with a company in New Zealand that's really quite innovative called New Zealand Merino that has a certification called ZQ that is all about it's a range of innovations actually that they brought to the, the market but forward contracts for farmers so that they don't have to go down to the auction house each month and sell their wool but they can they can have a long-term horizon on the price for their material and focus on the quality of of the fiber and care for animals and it mandates a certain behavior there that you know there's been some controversies 
maybe more so in Australia than in New Zealand around mulesing and some different... Do they do mulesing in New Zealand because of climate? Maybe they don't. They don't. Um, but the ZQ sort of certification is sort of, you know, we think the gold standard around the world in terms of the sourcing of, of merino fibre and it also creates an incredible product. So we're using superfine merino that's largely from New Zealand, some from Australia, that's knitted for us into a material in, in Italy. So we're using sort of the best of the best and we're, we're pretty proud of that. All right, let's get into this wheat foam conversation because I was trying to learn about this. Quite a lot to learn. Yesterday I was having a good meeting with Jad Fink, who is your VP of Innovation and Sustainability. Mm -hmm. But, all right, so, Joey, you started with this algae situation. You're now using algae in this product in Brazil. Explain how it works, how it's made, what it is, and why it's good. Sure. So this one, it, it actually, we had to substitute yeast for algae in this case, and I'll explain more. But So we, we, what we did was... When we started, we knew we had really thoughtful materials for the top part of the shoe um, and the bottom unit, the, the sole of the shoe, we knew was a weakness. And, and we're still far from perfect, but we're in this constant evolution and we've always believed that perfection can be the enemy of really, really good and particularly in sustainability. So we knew we had a weakness and from Jad and my previous background at Solazyme, we understood that there was this vast stretch of land that has sugarcane in it in southern Brazil. And it's a fantastic place to grow sugarcane. And there's so much of it, they produce about 50% of the world's sugarcane. I was asking him if that means that they're clearing forests in order to put these fields yeah, in. Fortunately, that, not. Yeah, that's not. They, they don't do that. And it's so far south of the Amazon, there's really no risk of that. And we're making sure that we use Bonsugro certified sugarcane, which is their equivalent of ZQ for the Merino side, to make sure that that is quite good in terms of land use management. But if you picture a sugarcane, it's, it's harvested once a year in Brazil. And it's the most efficient crop in terms of photosynthetically transferring carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into a fixed carbon source in the form of sugarcane and sugar inside of that. So if you picture a tailpipe spewing out CO2, this sugarcane is actually very efficiently sucking that out of the atmosphere and locking it in the stock. And so once the stock is then processed, you get your table sugar, and then there's a bunch of waste streams that come off of it. One of them is the, is the leftover sugarcane stock, and that's used to make renewable power. And then there's another one, which is this, they call it thin juice down there. There's a little residual sugar left. And with our partner, Brazchem, we use a biotech process where yeast ferments the sugar and produces ethanol. And then through a number of chemical engineering steps, we take that ethanol and move it into something called ethylene. And then finally, the last step into EVA, which is ethylene vinyl acetate. And that's the most ubiquitous and prevalent component in the sneaker industry is that foam midsole on the bottom of shoes. And it's, aside from ours... A hundred percent is yes right? from fossil fuels, and it's quite quite bad for the environment. When you do it with the process that we've partnered with Brazchem on, it actually sucks more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than it takes to create that material. So, were you working with the same producers or organization on the algae stuff? Is that yeah, really similar? Cost? So, for our background, we had a lot of relationships down in Brazil, and because it's such an efficient and sustainable source of carbon, we we were working down there at, at my last company. So, I've read this being described as green EVA. Is that a kind of accurate or can we use such a statement? Yeah, I mean, it's it's carbon negative. The material is so good in terms of its carbon sequestration that it's sucking more carbon out of the atmosphere than it takes to produce. So I would call it green in the sustainable sense. If you're asking from a coloration, no, it is not green. All right, <laughs> but you can't use 100% of this material. You're blending it with plastic, right? 
when it comes to making the sole? Like it's only 80%, isn't it? So there's, there's a whole bunch of different components in there. I wouldn't say plastic, but for example, the E is from a renewable resource. The VA is vinyl acetate is currently from a fossil drive process. And, you know, we we're continuing to work on innovations to increase the bio content, but yeah, it is, it's not a hundred percent at the moment. And you know, I think if you think about when Rockefeller came around and realized that kerosene and diesel could be used to propel automobiles and, and other forms of transportation. Damn. Well, there's been, since that time in the early 1900s, there has been an incredible amount of chemical engineering and innovation spent on using every last drop of that barrel of oil. And if that innovation had been paid to naturally derived materials with the same passion and with the same vigor, we would be talking about everything being from natural materials. And I think the, the base reason for that not being the case is that no one had to pay for the pollution of when they use these dirty materials. And so we, we're on, a, on the early part of a wave to really start to hopefully fix that. Well, yesterday when I said to Jed, okay, it's not 100%, he said, yeah, but think about hybrid cars. I thought it was quite an interesting example. So we had to have this period of hybrid cars before we could move to electric. There has to be a process of yeah. figuring this stuff out. But Tim, how important is it for brands to take responsibility for end of life? Because the reason I raised the fact that it's not 100% made of this material is that it obviously means it's not biodegradable. How do you at Allbirds look at circularity, end of life, what happens to a product after you've made it out of the best materials? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about getting a little bit better rather than feeling like you need to have a complete solution. If you need to have a complete solution, like you don't get out of bed in the morning because so much of this is so hard. And I think when we first started, I was I was blown away by an industry that neither of us knew anything about that was so entrenched in certain ways of behaving. And we would ask to swap out different... Um, whether it be the heel counter or early on it was the shoelaces with kind of traditional synthetic materials with maybe the use of post-consumer or bio-based materials into, into some of these components and the manufacturers would look at us like we had six heads and they'd be like, why are you doing this? It costs more and no one's going to know. It was like, it was just a different way of, of working and we've kind of, we've been able to, I think in a short space of time, really understand that a lot of these innovations like the Green EVA, the sugarcane-based footwear soles they've been possible for a long time like we're not coming in and inventing these things they've been around for a long time and and I, I think we've just become a conduit with a different type of business model to take them to market but interestingly you're also looking at making this open source you're not even <laughs> hogging it like you've developed it with your partners but now you're actually saying you want the industry to actually access it yeah I mean I, the whole point with the the sugarcane project is that that was a big company we were dealing with, with in Brazchem they weren't going to do it just for all birds but the idea that we could take it to market, show that it was possible, and then everyone else in the footwear industry, EVA is an incredibly largely used material in footwear, that um, the rest of the industry would kind of follow and come and use it after us, and, and that's really proven to be the case. And I think there's north of 100 brands have inquired about using this material. I think many of them are plan to roll it out this year, and we did that not just because we're good guys, but also knowing that with volume, the cost would come down. And I think we're seeing that happen. And I think that's the interesting conversation around sustainability is where you, you intersect with a, with a business outcome and also with something that's better for the environment that also equals a product that's the same, if not better. All right, I want to just finish up by talking about carbon neutrality. This is another thing that the industry needs to work on in collaboration if they're going to get anywhere. It's also another one that I think there's some scepticism around 
you know, I was asking about can we use the phrase green before EVA when it comes to carbon neutrality. There's a lot of kind of scepticism where journalists are like, come on, what does this really mean? Mm-hmm. I sent you a link before we did this interview. Uh, it's to a story on fashionista. Fashion brands are claiming to be carbon neutral, but is it greenwashing? And it begins referring to David Wallace Wells, so the uninhabitable earth, and putting this context around we're basically in trouble as a race. We've got this huge pressure on brands to try to turn this stuff around. If governments aren't going to go neutral, what are brands going to do? Tell us what you're doing. Perhaps just explain what the Allbirds Carbon Fund is. I I think just to intro that, this is shifting. This whole conversation on the topic of sustainability is shifting. We felt it just in the last sort of three or four years. It's shifting from empathy, should we use the word green and bio, to actually like activism. And I think you're seeing it in the UK with the Extinction Rebellion and people jumping on tubes trying to stop the trains. And people are, I, I think, fed up with these sort of conversations that skirt around the edges of the problem. And I think we face the same sort of issue. You know, end of life, which you raised before, is, is a complicated topic. Uh, microplastics is a complicated topic. Ethical treatment of, of labour and people is complicated. Water usage. And before long, this gets so confusing and so complicated that you literally don't know what to do. And it becomes polarising. And we've been doing that. I think we feel like we've been spinning our wheels on this particular subject for too long. And, and I think where we've landed... You mean as a society. As a society. Yeah. Mm. And I think where we've landed is that there's a, a new era of objectivity that's required and a singular plan to bring some level of direction to a problem that we all know exists. Mm. And for us, that's carbon. Mm. And it is about, it's about three things. It's about the measurement of your carbon impact. And it's about offsetting whatever that is greater than zero in the short term. Uh, seeing that not as the final solution, but as a necessary and important short-term action. And you should do that, and we have done as of this year. And and then the third bit, and that's the bit that people often miss, is you need to innovate. You've effectively applied a, a tax to yourself. You now need to innovate and drive that number down, manage it like you would any unwanted expense within your business. And that's kind of how we're approaching it. And we have a, a score for each product that we make, a, a total number for the business, and and it's bigger than we want it to be. And we've got a job to do, so you know we're on a, on a mission to try and work that out. What did I miss, Joey? I think it was very well said. I think the, the bottom line is if a company makes something at this point, it's very likely that there are some emissions and that those companies are polluting, and we're no different than that, so we should pay for our pollution. And it's just a simple premise, and it doesn't mean that that makes us perfect. It, it's what's underlying what the company does, as Tim said, to continue to innovate and drive that emission level down. That's, that's what the scorecard is, and that's where it's really important. Joey, now you're being surprisingly humble because actually if you look at what the broader landscape is with brands and in in fact even cities and governments talking about carbon neutrality, by 2030, by one day, not a great deal of planning, we'll figure it out later, this is hard, they say, we're going to put some targets in place and then try and figure out how to get there. You're saying, no, we're going to practically do this, it looks like this, and you can see how we're doing it. Well, we, we certainly feel that there's, like around climate change, there's an urgency that is required to solve this problem. And like commitments without a real plan to actually achieve the goals in those commitments. I mean, we see that in the fashion industry a lot. There's a lot of goals out there for 2030 and 2040 about climate neutrality or carbon neutrality. And I just don't believe that they have a real action plan behind 
getting to those goals. Mm-hmm. So we've decided, forget that. Let's just take action now. Put the tax on ourselves and do it. And it, you know, it's quite logical when you think about it that way. Albeit, you know, there's a penalty for it. But we've just built our business and put that into our cost of doing business. And that's what we think every brand should do. And if consumers reward us for that. Business has a funny way of of making sure that others imitate that practice, and hopefully that's what happens. You're taxing yourself, and you're doing it willingly. Yeah. I was talking to Tahana the other day, who works in your sustainability team, just about the details of this. She was saying that you've actually tried to give consumers the option as to where you would place the offsets but people haven't yet taken it up. Like, I think it's still super complicated. People don't know what it means, right? Well, we, we do give people the option of, of a couple different kinds of projects, and they vote. And we take that into consideration when we're spending the money from our carbon fund to say which project do we want to fund to uh, sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. Sorts so, of things being? Oh, there's some boring stuff, like making sure we don't let methane escape from landfills when compostable products biodegrade, to forestry projects, to energy projects, like putting solar or or other wind-type projects into place. And we give the option, and, and we're going to figure out exactly how we invest that each year, and we'll do it differently. But um, not that many people are actually filling it out, apparently, I was told. Like, they're a bit, it's still confusing for people. People don't even know what offsetting means. Yeah. They just go, thanks, I loved your shoes. Well, that's why, we, that's why <laughs> I think the fundamental premise Tim mentioned earlier, but that you can't sell sustainability. you got to sell amazing stuff. And once you do that, it should be a non-negotiable that you treat the planet sensibly. As you're making those products, you got to know where they come from. you got to understand your supply chain. And if there's any pollution, you got to pay for it. And that, that's just our, the principles that we've built the business on. And so as a result of that, the stuff is obvious. And it sounds kind of crazy to some other businesses that have been built in another way, but we just think it's the right thing to do. Let's just finish then. Future gazing. Where do you think that this broadly sustainability conversation is headed? Well, I think it's happening now. It's shifting from empathy and inquiry to action and objectivity. And I think that's what the person on the street is demanding. They want to know what's right and what's wrong. And I think it's a moment in time to get it all out on the table and not spend our time worrying so much about who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong because I think that will come out in the wash. I think we need a new system of accountability. And I think that's fundamentally in the quantification of, of carbon and the offsetting and then the innovation to drive that down. And I, th- I think that's ultimately the scorecard that's going to get us out of this mess. And I think it's something that is can be universally applied across industries. I mean, fashion industry is one concrete and steel and transport, many of those have larger impacts. No one wants to talk about the building industry, do they? Yeah, exactly. So, But what I do think, the fashion industry has a real role to play. It'll, it'll be the artists and the creators and the storytellers that show us a way out of this, that bring simplicity to the complexity of this problem and make it clear what's right and what's wrong. And we, we don't have time. We've got to go and we've got to be clear. And so, you know, I think what's great about this sweet foam thing is there's 100 companies using this thing. Brilliant. This is not going to be done just by us. And I think if we've realised anything through the last three or four years is that this requires not just a a new application of science and a new approach to innovation, but a new attitude to sharing and transparency and of of best practice being widely disseminated. Um, And the big companies that we've mentioned too need to not be scared of the things they're not doing so well and be really open with the the scale and and, and new opportunities that they can bring to market. And I know I... I'm cautiously optimistic. I feel like we've seen a change and I see a, a younger customer in particular that's starting to demand this and you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we find a way out of it. You have to be, right? Yeah, I remain optimistic and I do think some emotional 
purchases and the fashion industry can be leaders and, and maybe policy follows that. And, and I do think there's, there's a clear way to get us out of this mess, but it does require some action now. You also got a secret weapon, and it's Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, exactly. Go on, do an impression. <laughs> End on an impression. I'm going to make you. Hello. Oh, it sucks. <laughs> Joey, please. I'm, I'm going to opt out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Joey. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you